This is NiceAce Now, your source for real-time and on-demand professional learning designed specifically with the independent school educator in mind. A podcast of interviews, seminars, and conference talks to listen to whenever and wherever you like. Brought to you by the New York State Association of Independent Schools. I'm George Swain. The following talk was recorded at the Nice Ace Business Managers Conference at the Mohonk Mountain House in May of 2018. In this keynote address entitled Navigating the Big Hairy Challenges Facing Independent School Leaders, author Grant Lickman explores some of the serious challenges and hopeful opportunities confronting independent schools today. We hope you find this talk both interesting and inspiring. Thank you, and uh, thank you to NYSACE for, for bringing me back. I think this is the fourth time I've been here, uh, and I was thinking today that uh, though my dance card is rather full working with schools, if any of you would like me to work with your school, just book room 461 for me for a semester, and I'll just live here, and I'll work for you for free. Uh, I love coming here, even though it involves flying all the way across country and back, and I have to get up at 3.15 in the morning to drive to Albany to catch a plane back home. To, to San Diego, but uh, I'll, I'll always come here to Mohonk Mountain. Uh, and it is very nice to be back and with sort of my natural cohort. I was uh, business manager, CFO, assistant head. I, I know the title, the real title of your job is the title that I had for 14 years at Francis Parker School in San Diego, which is everything the head doesn't want to do. Uh, so I, I, I know your pain. The day that I arrived at Francis Parker School and took over the business office, we were one week away from calling the credit line of our trustees to make payroll. Uh, I know your pain. Uh, four years later, we won the NAIS Award for Financial Sustainability that year. Uh, so we know that these we, you face large problems, and they're all uh, hopefully all solvable. Uh, since I left Parker in 2012, I've had the great honor and fortune uh, to not have a day job like you all do, uh, and to travel the country uh, initially on my own. Uh, driving around the country my Prius for three months by myself, just visiting schools, and then subsequently getting to work with a lot of schools, both public and private, around the country. Uh, and I learn a tremendous amount, and I try to share as much as I can. I want to, before I even start, say that uh, hopefully you, re you recognize that everything I'm going to share with you today, which is a fraction of what I could share, uh, is really a distillation of things I've learned from being able to interact with not just hundreds, thousands of uh, education community stakeholders over the last five or six years. I just see myself as a conduit, a network uh, agent for that, and uh, a few that I'll, I'll give credit to by name, but the vast majority are just folks that I get to interact with uh, as part of my non-day job, uh, which I thoroughly enjoy. So with that as a, the briefest of introductions, uh, let me just kick off this. Uh, I, Within the last couple of weeks sometime, I somehow had a moment of clarity and those words came to my mind. And I think it's really becoming, uh, and it should have been uh, for a long time, uh, my mantra, and I think it's got to be our mantra. It's a little zen, isn't it? Uh, because you can't have one without the other. But this is really something that our schools, that we as educators, public or private, need to wrestle with. Uh, we know as business folks that the past provides us with such good uh, data and uh, information upon which to construct the future. But if in, in today's environment, if we use that as our sole guide, we're really, really in trouble. And so that's sort of the, some of the tension I want to I start with. I am not going to spend today telling you all the data that you already know about the financial fragility and unsustainability of the, of the independent school model. Let's just get that out at the beginning. Uh, heck, those of you who've been here for 10 or 15 years, you were the ones 10 or 15 years ago screaming, this model's unsustainable, and back to the 80s. Some of our predecessors were screaming that. I'm not going to go there, hopefully uh, share some additional uh, insight with you uh, that maybe has not been as much on your, on your plate. I think that education writ large is facing these four existential questions. Why should we change? What's that change going to look like? How do we get there? And are we even on a, tra a trajectory to intersect the future in a rapidly changing world? Writ large, these are the four big questions that all educators around the country and, and really around the world are facing. I'm not going to try to delve into these in huge depth. I will try to touch on uh, some of them with maybe some new insight uh, that you haven't had in the past. 
Let me start here. About two years ago, just about two years ago now, I had a call from a gentleman who was the head of the strategic planning committee of, let's just say, a well-known East Coast day boarding school, not in the state of New York, but nearby. Uh, he was, again, chair of the planning committee on the board of trustees. He said, Grant, we've just completed a five-year strategic plan. Uh, we've been, we're working out 20 years. This is a school with a multi-hundred million dollar endowment. Uh, a very impressive uh, college matriculation statistics, a long admissions line out the door, and it's been that way for a long time. In other words, this is a school that's probably in the top one-tenth of one percent of all schools in America, if not the world, in terms of resource and market position. And he said, we looked out, we're looking out 20 years, and we're afraid we might not be in business. Seriously. Uh, can you come talk to our uh, trustees? We're wrestling with this. And my first response was, wow, I finally got the call I've been waiting for. Uh, an organization that everybody else would say they don't need to worry about it, but the fact is they are worrying about it. And that prompted a lot of my uh, work heading into the book that I published last year, Moving the Rock. Anyway, that's just a little bit of background and context. Why should schools change? I'm not going to go through, again, the financial sustainability issues, and I'm not going to go through the argument about jobs of the future. You've already heard that. You've been hearing it now for, you've either been hearing it for 10 or 15 or 20 years, or else your, your head's been buried in the sand somewhere, uh, because we know those. But what are some of the other issues? We clearly know, and you know there's been a dramatic fragmentation, differentiation in the school market in America. In the 1990s, early 2000s, 90% of American kids went to either their neighborhood public school, a parochial school, or a private school. Uh, the other 10% homeschool, et cetera. But 90% of the market had three options. Today, there are just a, a constantly exploding range of options of different types of school, choices that our families have. I live near San Diego, and in the area described by San Diego Unified School District, which is about 350,000 students, two years ago, 50% of kids were not going to their neighborhood school. The schools that I went to, you all, many of you went to when you were young, 50%. That number 20 or 25 years ago would have been 10%. And there's no indication that that curve is reversing. It's not equitable or constant across the country. It's very different in different markets, but there certainly has been a dramatic, there is an ongoing dramatic differentiation of the marketplace. And so the question is, what are these families searching for? And I want you to spend just a minute or two getting to know the person next to you or the people at your table. I'm gonna give you two prompts and about 30 seconds each for you to talk about these and then shout out some of your answers. The first prompt is this. Think about a time in your life when you learned something so well that you still remember that lesson today. There were, some there were some conditions exigent at that moment in time that allowed that moment of peak, what we call peak learning to take place. I want you to share a word or a couple of words with people at your table. What were the conditions that allowed that great learning to take place? It could have been in school or it could have been out of school, right? Could have been with a parent, a mentor, or whatever. Think just for a second, do a quick shout out around your table. One word, two words, a phrase and then we're gonna hear some of them, okay? About 30 seconds from now, we'll call you back to order. <laughs> Second prompt, now you've got some of those words juggling around in your head. Second prompt, now you get one word. What one word do you hope others would use to describe your school? Do you hope others would use to describe, I'm a visitor, I'm a student on your campus, then I walk out of there and I go, wow, this is the word that's resonating in my head. One word, share that one word around your table. Okay, shout out. What were some of the words that you heard for either of those prompts? I'm just gonna, as my hand goes. Fear for the first one, community for the second. Fear, community. Trust. Trust. Possibility. Possibility. Acceptance. Acceptance. The first Sorry, what was it? Authority. Authority. Challenge, failure, failure. Passion. passion, vision, mission, mission. supportive, inclusive, inclusive. Innovative. innovative, energized, quiet, quiet. good. <laughs> I've collected in workshops for the last five years, 
if you'd, if you'd bought stock in 3M five years ago before I started getting to post-it notes, we'd all, we'd all made money. Um, I've collected thousands, literally thousands and thousands of post-it note responses to those questions from business officers, heads, faculty, other types of administrators, faculty, uh, parents, uh, et cetera, students, uh, and we get word clouds that look like that. This is a word cloud about this from the second prompt about what it is that you want uh, your school, what's that one word you want to describe your school. And I want you to look at that and ask yourself, at an 80% level or something, is that kind of what you heard around your table? And I see a lot of heads nodding like, it's not 100% agreement, but an 80% level. And the fact of the matter is, is that every time we do this exercise, no matter the hats people wear for their job, no matter what role they play in their community stakeholders, wealthy schools, not wealthy schools, public, private, we keep getting the same responses at about an 80% level. What, what do we not see there? Nowhere on the word clouds does knowing the quadratic formula show up, or five on the APs. They just don't show up. There are parents, of course, that say, well, of course, I want my kid to get in you know, college acceptance is one. But it's not a big word on the word cloud. So what do the families that have a choice now, have many more choices than they used to, tend to all say the same things when you ask them questions like, what do you think great learning looks like? What do you think great teaching looks like? What do you hope and dream for your school and your kids? They have a lot of choice, but what they say they want are, is not nearly as widely distributed. And so we ask why do we need to change our school? Because we look at this, and some of you in the room I've worked with in rather great detail, I won't name uh, school names, but one in particular, there's a difference between, especially when we talk to the faculty, what are we doing today, and what have we just said we want our school to be? And once we recognize that, then there's a real motivation to change. We want to be who we want. To, we want to be the best we can for our students. And it doesn't matter whether you're the business officer or a classroom teacher. There's this concordance, a general concordance of interest. So this is, to my mind, one of the most important reasons why schools should change. Of course, nationally and internationally, globally, we're, we're undergoing these major, major what we call mutations in industries. We look at industries like these that have been fundamentally disrupted, mutated, uh, and I've asked myself, what's, what's common amongst these that would relate to, to schools? And here are three things that I think are common amongst transitions like going from CDs to iTunes or taxis to Uber or Lyft, et cetera. Number one, they bypass costly infrastructure, and we are all heavily invested in costly infrastructure. They blow away the need for costly infrastructure. Number two, they allow really decentralized sort of decision-making and relationships. I don't have to call my travel agent any longer. I don't have to dial 777777 for Yellow Cab. I've got an app for that. Uh, number three, it, it, these dramatically increase individualized, personalized connections amongst networks of people who never had any relationships before, right? Airbnb people all over the world are now vendors for me if I choose to use Airbnb. Or a musician can sell directly to me rather than through uh, the music distributor. I haven't I've yet to run into anybody who thinks that education should be immune from these same sort of fundamental mutations. In fact, education is becoming ripe for it, and the, dis, the, the differentiation in the market that we see, many of those are in response to these same kind of major shifts that are affecting these sorts of industries. One of the great uh, examples I love to share, and this comes from Tom Friedman's uh, book, came out about a year ago, Thank You for Being Late, uh, which you should read right after you read. Of course, you've all read Ed Journey already, and you should read my book, Moving the Rock, and Tom Friedman needs to sell books, so you should read his book too. Poor guy, you know, New York Times. Uh, this is a discussion Friedman has with Eric Teller, the CEO of Google X. And we we're familiar with this curve. Yeah, there's this incredibly rapid rate of change in or the world around us, and often it's, it's, it's referenced purely as a technology uh, change, but there's a lot of other things that are changing dramatically in the world uh, that we have to recognize in, in, a, in a learning environment. But we have this rate of change versus time, sort of exponential curve. And what's interesting about the conversation with Teller was that Teller says there's this other curve. This is the curve at which humans are able to adapt to change. In the past, the big, big changes, agricultural revolution, industrial revolution, these things are hundreds or thousands of years, right? We had time to adapt to them. 
Now these changes are happening, big changes in transportation, communication, technology, global economic systems are happening in months or years, or maybe even less. And what Teller says, the kickers keep getting higher stake here, Teller says we as individuals and institutions are there. We exist at a point on this curve of change where the, we are not able to adapt to the changes in the world around us. The changes are happening so quickly, we as organizations and institutions are not able to adapt to them. If you don't believe that, ask your teachers that are still struggling with how to use an iPad, how they're keeping up with second graders who are printing prosthetic hands. It's a fundamental problem in schools. This isn't the kicker. The kicker, as Teller says, is that the responsibility for preparing our society, human society, this, is, this hasn't happened in you know, millions of years of evolution. The responsibility for dealing with this situation, which is likely never going to reverse, is 90% up to educators. And yet, I have yet to run into an educator who even knows what that sentence means. We don't know what this means, and yet it's our responsibility. So why do schools need to change? Because our goal is to provide great learning to prepare young people for their future, and we don't really know what it, some of that even means. So maybe some ideas that have not been uppermost in your mind as you're thinking about financial and sustainability issues and high tuitions. Um, one of the people I've had the real great fortune to interact with, uh, some of you know, many of you know, some of you have received checks from them. Uh, John Gula is the executive director of the E. Ford Foundation. E. Ford supports independent high schools with, with foundational grants. And uh, John and I started co-presenting and co-sharing ideas a few years ago, largely because, because I think between the two of us now, we've probably visited something like 400 plus schools in that time, and we just are able to share a lot of takeaways, uh, he, uh, exclusively at independent schools and I at a, at a variety. But John and I uh, came up with this conclusion that about a year ago, and it was part of the introduction to Moving the Rock. We think that in 25 years, it's hard to make the case other than all schools public and private are gonna fall into one of three categories. Either they're so well insulated by some combination or factors of market, geographic position, uh, legacy, financial resources, et cetera, that the world can change however it wants and that school is gonna be just fine. I imagine a few of you are, I, I have to tell you, I use the metaphorical upper west side of Manhattan, right? Uh, you know, the upper west side of Manhattan, everybody within what? several miles of you, makes millions of dollars, they all want the kids to go to private schools, et cetera. I know it's not true, but you know, metaphorically it is. So there's some category of school that can say, you know what, 25 years from now, we're gonna be in that, we're gonna be in that group. The second category are schools that understand this differentiation in the market, and they say, we've gotta, we've gotta be so highly differentiated and clear about our value proposition that people are gonna choose us. It's the only defense against a truly differentiating market. And the third is schools that are struggling and failing. We don't want you to be in the bottom. Many schools are not willing to bet that they're gonna bet the farm that they're gonna be in category one. Now, I'll tell you that two weeks ago, I was giving a dinner talk, pre-dinner talk, to the, what do they call themselves, the eight schools, St. Paul's, Deerfield, Choate, Exeter, Andover, the ones with like, you know, multi-hundred million to billion dollar endowments. And I was there for a reason. They're not even necessarily betting that they are in that top group, which if there's any schools that would be in the top group, it would be, it would be they. Uh, so this is, this, uh, as far as we can identify, John and I can identify, is something we really need to focus on. Your, the solution to this market fragmentation is to be so clear about your mission, have a clearly differentiated value in your marketplace that people go, yep, I'm gonna choose you. And it, again, this isn't just coming out of my head, it actually happens. So, those are some of the arguments around why should schools change. Let's move on to what is, that look like and more specifically for you folks what I want to do is I want to translate what some of these changes that we're seeing at schools already and what we're going to see in the future into some impacts on the financial equation of schools independent schools which we know is essentially uh, unsustainable for for many schools 
at a really macro level, and, and again, I get to visit lots of schools and I get to talk to a lot of people. For my more recent book, Moving the Rock, I didn't have to get in my Prius and drive around the country. I got to call and video chat with, with, with people all over the country and around the world. And I think we can say this, and this is kind of a quote from my friend Bo Adams at Mount Vernon Presbyterian. Over the, over the last number of decades, schools have essentially been organizations focused on teaching. And we're becoming organizations focused on learning. Most schools have not had the conversation about what the difference between those is. And there are fundamental differences in an organization whose primary reason for existence is to teach and one whose primary existence is for the, the, the stakeholders in that community to learn. And we're, I'm not going to go in and break that all down, but trust me, they're, they're not, they're, 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 they're not uh, uh, compatible systems. So, a lot of the discussion around the country now is about, and again, public and private schools is centered on this at a 30,000 foot level. When we come down one level, there's some, lang some additional language that you, as a key member of your school, should be familiar with. And if you're not familiar with the term deeper learning, uh, it's worth a quick Google search and diving onto the Deeper Learning Network site where there's all sorts of research, resources. 15 years ago, we were talking about 21st century skills. I think many educators now realize that things like, that were identified as 21st century skills, collaboration, communication, creativity, for some reason they all needed to start with C back then a decade or so ago. These are not 21st century, these are timeless skills. And they've really been captured into the language now of what we would call deeper learning. And the core, and again, at sort of a high level, the big buckets of deeper learning are, learning is gonna be more student-centric, it's going to be more owned by the students. It's based on inquiry and curiosity, not based on what I'm doing right now, which is having one person stand at the front of the room and talk at a whole bunch of other people. This is antithetical to all of that, which is why when I usually do workshops, they're interactive and not me talking all the time. Um, so many schools, I think, are converging around, yeah, if we put up that word cloud, if that's what we say we want to be, the route to get there is through a model that is not the traditional sort of industrial age model. It's something that's now evolving as deeper learning and I'll get more explicit about it here. So here's where the rubber hits the road. For 150 years, the American education operating system, which we can call it an operating system, has essentially said, we're going to take Th these kids of this age and put them into th this physical space, generally a classroom with four walls and a roof and a ceiling, for this period of time with this teacher to learn this subject material and then they're going to move on down the assembly line, right? That's, we call it the assembly uh, line model, the industrial age model, whatever it is. The deeper learning is different than that. And again, these are fundamentally different types of operating systems. Those are the sides of the box of the traditional system. And once schools get to the point where they say, you know what, that word cloud is what we really, really want, and the deeper learning and curiosity and student centrism and all that stuff is really what we want, what do they run up against? You've got to break some of those sides of the box. You can't create what you want to create as educators. And for a community that is demanding those sorts of things that were in the word cloud without changing some of these and that's where you come in because you can all look at that right now and you know the impact that each one of those has on your operating budget, right? Change the student-teacher ratio by 15%, that's a lot of money. Change the number of classrooms you have or the type of classrooms, work in the community more, I'm going to go into this, there are all sorts of things in there that can positively impact your operating budget. Now, there's, is there going to be pushback from people who say, wait a second, I, I don't want to change anything. Everything's going great. I don't want to get outside of my comfort zone. Yes. But remember those three categories. <laughs> we're either going to stand pat because we know we're going to be okay, or we're going to fail, or we're going to make sure that we're doing something that is highly differentiated to a market that requires it. 
So I want to break this down a little bit and go into, this was what really got me to write this new book. And I asked the question, what are we seeing at schools today? Not what do we think we might see in the future, but what are we starting to already see in schools today that are fundamentally changing that operating system? And what's inevitable about that evolution over the next decade or two, which is not, two decades is not a ton of time in the history of a lot of our schools and your schools. What are the big levers we have to provoke these changes that we can, analogs we can see happening today in the world around us? And I want to just go through some of these. So the first overall comment is, because of that curve, the future doesn't look a little different than today. The future looks a lot different than today. And there's a, people that are vastly smarter than I am who keep saying that over and over and showing that from all sorts of different perspectives. Uh, the future is going to be very, very different very, very quickly. It's happening very quickly. But let's look at some of these in terms of concrete terms. What's, what's already happening and what's going to happen in terms of student-teacher relationships? That fundamental learning relationship and, by the way, something that drives, what, 75-80% of your operating budget? How many teachers you have and what they're doing every day? We are seeing some fundamental changes when we go to a, something that's more student-centric, that's more student-owned learning, we can start changing things like the student-teacher ratio, not only to not negatively impact learning, but to positively impact learning because the students are taking a greater ownership. Many of you know Miss Porter's school nearby Connecticut. I've been working with Miss Porter's this last year. Go to my blog site about two weeks ago and read a blog I wrote, I won't go into detail. But keep an eye on what they're doing. They're in the process right now. Nobody, Miss Porter's does not need to change what they're doing. Miss Porter's is just fine in terms of their finances, but they're looking ahead. And they are fundamentally redesigning the role of the teacher, changing, having different types of teacher job descriptions in the future. They're gonna be getting rid of big chunks of departments, subject areas, uh, rebuilding a big chunk of their operating system. You should really keep an eye on what they're doing. And they're not the first one. I could throw out another three or four schools and certainly public schools that are doing the same sort of thing in terms of rejigging the fundamental student-teacher relationship. The role of the student and how students progress, how they learn, what they're learning, is going to be much, is going to be increasingly focused on actually differentiating and individualizing instructions. How many of you have in your mission statement or your vision statement something about we meet the, something that sounds like we meet the needs of every individual child? Come on, raise your hands. You all do. You all do. And if it's not in your mission statement, you all believe it, right? Well, the fact of the matter is, we haven't really been doing that. If you walk into a classroom and everybody's learning the same thing out of the same text, the same day, the same time, in the same way, we really aren't doing that. And yet we know, educators know, that what drives learning more than anything else is intrinsic motivation, not the extrinsic motivation of getting a good grade. The intrinsic motivation of, this is relevant. I care about this. I want to know this. And that is where interest-based learning comes in. How does that potentially contribute to your bottom line? One way, how many of, you, how many of your schools have gotten rid of 50% of your textbooks in the last five years? Or not buying, you're buying half as many textbooks as you were five years ago. So when I was at Francis Parker, now seven or eight years ago, our community was spending about $350,000 a year on textbooks. There's a whole chapter in that book, and I'm not, I'm not trying to get you guys to read books, I just, I'm, doing, I'm, I'm doing this work, I'm trying to share it, uh, about the amount of money that can be saved by just buying open education resources, fully accredited curriculum, fully accredited materials. It's all there, it's online, one of the biggest ones is, is right in New York, NY Engage, uh, and save massive amounts of money for schools, and there's public and private schools all over the country that are doing this, and it allows teachers and students to more individually tailor their learning, and I'm seeing this taking place in some of the least well-resourced, most underserved public schools in the country, because this is what their kids need to excel. Our use of time and space, I think that Many of us believe that in the relatively near future, 
this idea that we go to school, I use the air quotes for school, for seven hours a day, five days a week, 32 weeks a year, for 12 or 14 years of our life, is, will have outlived its usefulness. School is going to become a place we go when we need for what we need as long as we need for the rest of our lives. Why? Because the knowledge that we're acquiring in schools, a lot of it is available, you know, right here, anywhere we want it. So the time element of schools is going to be much more fungible and certainly the space element is going to follow. A gentleman came up to me at a conference I was doing last fall, and I won't say what school it was, it was a day boarding school in Connecticut. He said, we were just getting ready. We had blueprints ready to build a new classroom building, getting ready to put a bulldozer in the ground, $8 million building. And somebody said, why are we building this building? Well, because we want to have a much more fluid, dynamic, student-led, deeper learning Learning environment, not the traditional thing. Great. What if we TI'd all those classrooms instead of building a new building? They went and they did it for 25 grand a classroom, and I said to them, do you realize you put $6 million to your bottom line for not building that building? They got everything they wanted out of that TI project at $25,000 a classroom. Put in some glass walls, took down some walls, started using the hallways more, uh, bought new furniture, white surfaces, writable surfaces on the walls, etc. They got everything they wanted and didn't build the $8 million building. A huge, a huge direction around the country, more in public schools than in private schools, is learning in and with our community, is breaking this artificial boundary between school and world. These pictures happen to come from uh, the Lab Atlanta uh, operation, which is a collaboration uh, uh, with the Lovett School in Atlanta and some other schools and a university uh, in downtown Atlanta where students go for a semester. I'm working with, a, you, many of you probably know uh, the example of uh, the Lakeside School in Seattle and the micro-urban school that they started that's half the tuition of Lakeside. It's their own school, but it's half the tuition. I'm working with a school in Canada. I can't right now, I won't tell you what city it's in. We're designing a similar sort of effort, an independent high school in this city that will probably undercut the competition by about 25 or 30 percent in terms of tuition dollars, and there is going to be a significant demand for this school. We're designing it from the ground up, not the physical part is the last part of the design. We're really designing the program it, it needs to have, and, 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 and schools are looking for these alternatives. And finally, Technology. You have been writing checks, and some of you have been grinding your teeth about it for how many years now? 20 years. Those computers, then the laptops, then the iPads, then the iPod, or the iPods, the iPads, the i everything. And has this fundamentally changed how education takes place at your school? Not really. It's made changes, but it hasn't fundamentally disrupted our schools in the way that many thought it would 20 years ago. AI and VR are going to be game changers in this for, this, for this reason. We know as educators that education is both, trans, learning is both transactional and relational. And it's another thing that you all pride yourselves in as independent schools, the relationships that you have at your school. Because relation-rich learning is more is deeper and more through-going than transactional learning. AI and VR are really the first two technologies that, will come, that, that are being created right now that are true relation-rich technologies. Our students and our teachers in the very, very near future will have the capacity to interact just like you and I are now, except you'd be talking back to me rather than me just talking to you, and you can be in Mumbai and I can be in Philadelphia. And we can be building something, studying something, sharing, uh, sharing information. These are game changers uh, in, terms, in terms of the fact that we have these physical, big physical campus plants uh, that are the places that people go and sit for six or seven hours. A fundamental change to the learning system. So those are some ways that these changes that are already evolving. Everything I've talked about up to now is already happening. It's already happening in multiple schools and districts and regions around the country. Uh, and the rate of change, the acceleration of these is steepening almost everywhere. And they have real impact, potential impact on the bottom line. So I want to shift now to 
how the real question because why schools should change that train left the station a long time ago frankly if your school is still having the discussion why should schools not look like it did 150 years ago God bless you, I hope for the best, but that train left the station a long time ago. Uh, and catch up, <laughs> if that's the case. And what I've hoped I convinced you of, at least to some extent in the last 10 minutes was, actually the question of what do those changes look like? That wheel has been invented. It was actually invented by John Dewey and Maria Montessori 125 years ago, we just kind of all forgot about it. Uh, it went the way of the Cold War and blah, blah, blah. Um, the real question is how do we get there? And there's a lot in this, and I could be with you for two days and workshopping. I was with uh, 35 heads of the uh, Southern Association just last week in Louisville. We had a day and a half, and really it was a day and a half of what I'm gonna try to blow through in the next 15 minutes or 20 minutes. Uh, how do we get there? The first one is to realize this. We are living in what's called a VUCA world. How many of you know that term VUCA without reading the little sign up there, the, the acronym VUCA? A world that is increasingly volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Not very many. This is another conversation that you can help lead at your school. We need to have this conversation that the world, and this, is, this isn't grant, I mean, you go Google VUCA, you're gonna find you know, entire libraries in the business schools being written about this. That's what this curve means. The steepening curve means we can't predict the future as well as we used to. So, this is the world we, the deck we've been handed right now, and the problem is that schools are not places where a whole lot of people go to work for their career if they love volatility, ambiguity, and uncertainty. Most of your faculty didn't wake up when they were 22 years old and say, hey, I'm gonna go be a teacher because I love to work, with a, work in an environment that's really volatile and ambiguous and uncertain. And most of your heads didn't, they used to be teachers, right? Well, almost all of them used to be either English or humanities, some kind of humanities teacher, it seems like. Uh, and your boards didn't, join the board because they wanted another bit of volatile, ambiguous uncertainty in their lives. We don't have a lot of that DNA in our cultures, and yet that's the hand we've been dealt, so what do we do about that? I think there are three sort of big points at a high level here. The first one is effective, we've all heard that, you all know the, 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 the Drucker quote, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? It's true. It's kind of the best strategy in the world, but if you don't have a culture, nothing's gonna happen. It's true, but change requires an alignment of strategy and culture. These things have to come together. If you have one, and either one and not the other, not gonna happen if your school needs to change something fundamental. The second one is, change requires both a comfort and a capacity for change. And the one or two schools I've worked with here uh, in the room, we've been doing a lot of that. We've been building both comfort and capacity, both the head and the heart part of change has to take place amongst your, primarily the adults in the system. And third, as I just said, our schools are not wealthy in terms of innovation DNA. Many, many educators are tend to be risk averse and you cannot change in an environment that's afraid of taking a risk where there's where fear overrides risk taking so these are some sort of big three components that we have to deal with because of the hand we've been dealt with where we are in the world today so i want to that's chunk chunk number one chunk number two let's talk really about what strategy is because this is these believe me these are all going to come together here and you go oh yeah that makes sense you all have probably read a lot of strategic plans from various independent schools. I've read a lot of strategic plans from a lot of independent schools. In that day and a half I had with those 35 heads last week at the SAIS, I think this comment got more head nods than anything else I said. The vast majority of your strategic plans are almost completely tactical, not strategic. 
They're filled with lots of things, and there's nothing wrong. You gotta have tactical plans. You have to know what you're going to do. But tactics in the absence of real strategy is not a recipe for winning market share in an increasingly differentiated market. And we have, as a, as, a, as a set of organizations, I'm not pointing any fingers, this is just, remember, those of us who've been around a while, 25, 30 years ago, a lot of independent schools didn't even have a strategic plan. This was like, oh wow, we should actually be planning. We're not just pop and mom places, let's actually create a plan. The problem is that most of our plans are highly tactical, not strategic. So let's remember what strategy really is. Why am I talking with you guys about this? Because you have every bit, you need to be at this table as much as anybody else in your organization. Roger Martin, who's kind of one of the gurus of strategy, I think he's still dean of the biz school up at University of Toronto, and you can read his articles and books and everything. It's pretty darn simple, these five steps. You can get all kinds of other people opining on this, but a lot of it comes back. To me, this is just the easiest one to remember. That's what strategy is. And I'm gonna show you some data here at the end of my talk about what's uppermost in the minds of a lot of heads of school around America today. And I'm gonna suggest, and I'll suggest right now, that, that, this, that real strategic issues are not in most of our strategic plans. So I want you to look at that and say, in our strategic plan, is it clear, first of all, what our winning aspiration is, secondly, what's our market, and third, how are we gonna win the market? Without those three, all the tactics are not contextualized, and that's really important. Martin goes on to say, and, and others, this is a, a derivation of several others, strategy is not any of those four. Strategy is not having a vision statement, or even a vision, and it's not having a plan. Strategy is having, you know, knowing the market you're gonna win in, et cetera. And most specifically for us, for us in this room, Strategy is not about using what we've done in the past as the sole guide for what we're gonna do in the future, which is optimizing the status quo and essentially following best practices. Are those helpful? My first slide, remember? Yeah, they're helpful. But if they're our only guideposts, we're in real trouble. And I use this, this is part of a three question series and I'm not gonna pose the other two questions necessarily. I use this as a, as a great mindset tool. So, certainly when I was business officer for the decade and a half I was a business officer, when I look back on it, I felt like our school, we were a, a canoe on the river. And we're paddling our canoe along and we're looking at these other canoes in the river going, as long as we're moving down the river faster and more efficiently than these other canoes, or at least as fast and efficiently, i.e. benchmarking our peers, everything's okay. And what were we missing? Number one, from 1975 until 2008, the river was doing most of the work, or it was doing a lot of the work for all of us. Number two, we weren't watching the banks of the river, which is the world around us. We were pretty much going, eh, the world's kind of going on, everything's cool, everything's cool, we don't need to change. 2007, 2008 comes around, we all went, yeah, I guess maybe we do, this is, real, this is real stuff. We maybe do need to change. And the third thing is that in, that, in a world, in a VUCA world, where the future's coming at us this quickly, those waterfalls that are three curves ahead come at us a whole lot faster than they used to. And that's a fundamental way we have to operate where we're not using necessarily our benchmarking and our past performances for uh, compass points on where we should go in the future. I hope that, you're, that you can take some of this back and ask, is your leadership asking questions like this? These are questions that demand strategic answers. The bottom one is one that, in the data set that I'm gonna share with you in about five minutes, is one of the questions we posed to 200 plus heads of school and trustees over the last year and to develop some of the data that I'm gonna share with you. What is it about our stru fundamental structures and organization that really make it difficult for us to engage in some of these changes? But these are some strategic level questions and sometimes at some schools they're not being uh, 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 asked. Strategy, the, another, another common element of strategic 
orientation is the three horizons model. And it's not difficult to understand, there it is. <laughs> the three horizons are stuff we already know, stuff that we kind of know, and stuff that we really don't know. In, in, a, in an era of change, real strategy is gonna lie at least in the two, three gap, if not it, where the third balloon is. And what I ask, when I ask heads, or heads and board chairs, heads and trustees, how much time are you spending? And you ask this of yourself, how much time are you in your head spending in the two, three gap, especially your head, maybe your board, are they spending really thinking about the semi-known and the unknown in terms of strategic visioning for the future? The numbers are pretty small. They're not spending a lot of time doing that. Why? Because the heads, heads are down in a lot of the, the daily routine. And that's just the way we've grown to operate. It's not a good recipe for good long-term strategic thinking. In the past, I think it's fair to say that most of our strategic work, and you are so key to that, most of our quote-unquote strategic planning, which has turned out to be largely tactical, I think can be defined by these terms. We've essentially said every five years, episodic, we're going to do a five-year plan, medium term. We're going to look at what we've been doing, what we have been doing, which is inward and backward looking, and we're going to come up with a, uh, we're, going to, we're, going to, we're going to say how we can do those things better. A lot of strategic planning says, what have we been doing? How can we do that better to serve our customers? We end up with a highly tactical plan. Whereas, we're starting to see real convergence around. This is, again, this is not me. If we, NAS conferences and reaching out to a lot of different schools, you'd be hearing the same thing from Tim Fish if he were here. If you don't know Tim, he's the uh, director of innovation for NAIS, brilliant guy who's been there for now a year and a half or so, and his whole group, you'd be hearing the same thing from him, from many of the other schools that are starting to make some of these fundamental changes, saying no, what we need to be is we need to be looking outward to the world, we need to be looking forward, not back, because back is not as good an indicator. We need to be, this needs to be an ongoing process, not every five years. It needs to be truly long range, like that gentleman I started off with with a phone call who said we're looking out 20 years, not five, and we need to really focus on strategic imperatives. And your role in this is imperative. We can't do it without, without your input. So what we're seeing now is a, a convergence. And again, I would say we're starting to see a convergence at the NAIS level. We're seeing it in public schools around a different type of thinking, what I call it strategic design, that has these sort of characteristics. It's not too far off a model. Uh, Cotter and others uh, who've published extensively on change management and written books about it uh, at, at Harvard and, and elsewhere. A lot of similarities. Uh, this sort of uh, framework of ongoing, uh, uh, inclusive, fluid, dynamic, evolutionary design change, rather than we're going to we're going to come up with something every five years and follow that plan, is is becoming. We're starting to converge around this as a model. We're away from it becoming ubiquitous, but we certainly see this as uh, a direction that many schools are going. And whilst I can show you movies of what it looks like and all that, here are the adjectives I use to describe this as opposed to the typical sort of, let's get together with the leadership team, uh, throw the numbers on the table, and come up with a new plan. It's inclusive of your community, it's ongoing, it's evolutionary, it's transparent, it's not one committee, it's radically inclusive of many community stakeholders. It, works at a, it looks at the systems levels of your school, not just at this visionary level. And yeah, it's a little bit messy because a lot more people involved becoming active stakeholders in strategy, which I'll finish with is what we need. If I had to pull three tools out of the quiver that I carry on my back, again, I'm blowing through stuff that we took an hour, a day and a half to do last week with the heads uh, down in Louisville. So I, I told myself yesterday on the plane, uh, Grant, you only get three. What are three tools that you, know, you would suggest that schools should really be focusing on to get this sort of more inclusive strategic design and focus on the, on the more distal horizons uh, uh, for, for, their, for their future? The first one is this. 
schools basically operate at three different levels. 30,000 foot level is this vision, who, who are we going to be and where are we going? And frankly, that's kind of been the purview of the head and the board. The second level is, what are the systems that we have in place that are actually going to make that vision come about? Our curriculum, our pedagogy, our use of time, the operating system that I showed you before, the box, the operating system. And that's kind of been the purview of administrators and department chairs and folks like that, you all. And the third level is the ground floor, the faculty's level. What am I going to do every day? <laughs> These three need to be aligned. And in many schools, they're not, partly by what I just said. That's their problem. This is my problem. That's their problem. And we don't interact. We do not collaborate on aligning these three. So if your school's vision statement says, we are going to have the best faculty, that's part of our vision statement. That's part of our strategy. How are the systems in your school actually going to make that happen? First of all, what does best mean? Nobody will agree what that means if you actually have the discussion. If you say we're going to have globally aware citizens, do the teachers understand what they need to be doing every day to meet that part of the vision statement? These are the integrated discussions of strategy that we need to have. We're not living in a world where one person, a head of school, two people, head of school and CFO, small group, an admin team can get everybody else to do what you want them to do in, on a rapidly changing basis. We need people to own strategy themselves, which gets us to tool number two. Most educators have worked within those silos for most of their career. Teachers have not viewed themselves as leaders of the school. They've not viewed themselves as leaders of strategy. We've not asked them to think strategically. We've asked them to do what you need to do in the classroom. And yet, in order to evolve a system in a time of rapid change, we do need some kind of distributed system where many more people own, just as we're asking our students to own their learning, we need the adults in the system to own their piece of it. Probably some of you have either read or had your school work with uh, the uh, five, uh, uh, five dysfunctions of a, five dysfunctions of an effective team, five dysfunctions of an ineffective team, whatever the early version was, that's been updated by five behaviors of a cohesive team, the opposite. I cannot tell you how many schools we've gone into where this is the stumbling block. This is the cultural stumbling block. In order for schools to act as an integrated unit where strategy percolates vertically, where teachers know how to, that they're implementing the vision of the school, they need to work well together as tribe members, as team members, and they've never had that training. And yet what's remarkable is, I can walk into a group of faculty like this, got 100 faculty, and ask them on one side of a piece of paper, list the characteristics of a well-functioning team, and over here, list the characteristics of a poorly functioning team, which is the, you know, there's a, there's a library full of books about that, and they can all do it in 10 minutes. In 10 minutes, they will generate as authoritative a list of those two characteristic lists as you would find in any book. So they know it but they don't know how to implement it on their daily basis. And without that, without being able to operate as a team and break down those silos, change is very difficult. So that would be tool number two. And the third one is this. It's, you might refer to it as backward design. Your teachers will know it as, uh, sorry, your teachers will know it as uh, backward design. You might call it reverse engineering. It's basically a logic model. Most of your teachers, given a problem that they need to solve, if you arise with a, a, a new direction you want to go to, most of your teachers will say, give me more time, or give me more money, or give me fewer students. They're starting at the back end of the logic model. You have to be, help steer them toward the front end. First, we've got to know what are we trying to achieve, what impacts are we trying to generate? Once we decide we're going to do those, you need to be on the forceful end of, if we say we're going to generate these impacts and outcomes, we will find the resources to do it. But your teachers are going to want to tend toward immediately saying, just give me more time. I can't tell you the number of schools that have called and said, Grant, can you come work with us for a day? We just changed our daily schedule, and, and now we want to do some strategic work. 
I said, why did you change your daily schedule? Well, the teachers just wanted a little bit more time. Did, it, did you talk about pedagogy? Did you talk about curriculum? Did you talk about subjects? No, we just we changed our schedule completely backwards, immediately going to the back end of the, of the logic model. So those are three of many, of many tools that I think schools need to use more of rather than rushing into, rushing into the obvious changes. I'm going to start wrapping up here now and I want to share with you this interesting data set I've been referencing. A year and now, what, two months ago, uh, John Gould and I presented a workshop, a three-hour workshop at NAIS. There were about 100 and, I don't know, 105, 110 people in the room, many heads, a few trustees, and an assortment of other administrators. And we did a lot of work with some of those quick provocative questions and some other ones that I haven't shared with you. But we started, we gathered a lot of post-it notes and over the last year I've used similar provocations of some of those sort of strategic level prompts that I showed you before and sorted them into four areas. We had the attendees sort them into four areas. Mission, people, the learning experience, and finance and operations. So these were things to provoke them into thinking maybe in ways that they hadn't in the past. In total, we had about 250 individuals that, I've, that, that responded in these workshops, gathered about 900 post-it notes in those four areas. And as I go through these, don't fix it in any one of them. I'll, I'm not, what, I, what I did was I've, I've, I've sort of sorted them, and I want to share with you some of the, the top things that came out of people's heads. This is what they're actually thinking about. This is what's most important to 250 basically heads of school and board chairs. But I want you to think about how many of these are in your strategic plans? How many of these are really a focus of discussion at your school? The first group, mission. The number one there, that was the number one of all the post-it notes we collected I could put into that budget, uh, into that bucket. The idea that the basic model, uh, this is all independent schools. It's not public schools, it's all independent schools. That the basic model is outdated. Is, does it say in your strategic plan, hey, the basic model is outdated, therefore we're going to do such and such about it. It's sitting up for most in many heads' minds. Just leave that on for a second, I'm going to go to the next one. The learning experience, the number one by far was, and again, this was not they weren't responding to Grant or anybody else telling them about deeper learning models. This is in their heads. This is coming out of them, uh, sort of unsolicited, just given different prompts. Flexible interdisciplinary student differentiated learning. That's, they're trying to figure out how are we going to do that. That was by far the, the, the top one. You can see a culture of learning rooted in risk and failure. Uh, and, and, and a lot around assessment. Those are the big ones in the learning experience. Around people, shifting role of the teacher. So all I do is I tell you what I learn from other people, right? Uh, by far the, the, the number one, and then educating parents about why these changes are not only important, but better than the learning systems we've had in the past. And finally, for operations. I was fascinated to see that uh, politics came out within the number one group of concerns that you could fit in in operations. Nowhere in here, all, well, way down on the list, were heads writing about rising tuitions. Why? Are they not concerned about rising tuitions and, and, and less affordability? They are. But that's become the air in the room. We know it. It was almost like we were seeing people Let's get it. We know that that's the case. We know we have to solve that problem, but the way we're going to solve it is through some of these other, uh, distilling some of these other opportunities. So this is going to be in a, uh, I just heard last week, uh, Independent School Magazine is going to publish the article I wrote about this. It'll come out in the fall, uh, a greater articulation. But I want to share with you ahead of time. I want you to, the takeaway here is, is if this is what's uppermost in the head's mind, and if any of this resonates with you, it certainly does with some of the board members I've talked to, some of the schools. Where is, where, where is this showing up in what should be our major driver of what, how you set your budgets and where we're applying our resources, which is in a truly strategic plan? I want to end with 
two slides. This is the first one, uh, and one more short one, and I'm going to shut up. Uh, last fall, John Agull and I were asked to present uh, at a uh, admissions admissions conference down in New Orleans, uh, and they said, "Grant, two, they said the two of you get one hour together." Well, giving John and I one hour together is a joke because you know. We, as you can see, we could each go on for hours all by ourselves. So I said to John, okay, John, here's the deal. We each get five things. You come up with the five things that you want independent school people to really be thinking about, and I'm going to come up with the five things, and let's make sure they're somewhat different. That, that's how. So here are my five things. John's were more about some of the issues are the leadership, uh, the financial model, the teacher model, et cetera. Here are my five things. Some of them you're going to say that doesn't apply to me because I'm a business officer, and my response is, yes, it does apply to you because you're a business officer. And uh, that your, your understanding of these challenges for the future is just as important as anybody else's. Again, these are just mine. Number one, I think if our students don't get that stuff, all the rest of the stuff we teach them doesn't make any difference, my opinion. But I'm seeing it echoed by a whole lot of other folks. There's some fundamental things that we haven't had to focus on in the past or we haven't focused on in the past as much and maybe our society is struggling because of it. So that's one. I think we're going to have to make sure we have our learning priorities right in a rapidly changing world. My number two is uh, for all schools, not just independent schools. I'm a little geologist. I was a geologist at Stanford, so I think in terms of big rocks and ev evolution is neither fair nor kind. We are in an evolutionary period, and some of your schools are not going to be around in 10 or 20 years. And it's not because you're not the most wonderful people or your school's the most wonderful group of people. Evolution just is not fair or kind. Uh, there are some of the most wonderful perfect Tyrannosaurus rexes that didn't make it through the Cretaceous extinction, right? They were the best Tyrannosaurus rex the world had ever seen. Uh, but that's just the hand we've been dealt. And in that environment, we have to focus on strategy. You have to focus on winning, uh, or your organization, your wonderful school, may not be around to serve students in the future. Uh, number three goes back to uh, the, the, the evolution of AI and VR, but with this huge tension. For 20 years, we as educators and parents have been pushing our students and our systems to become more and more connected to this incredible access to knowledge through the internet that we have and this learning opportunity where the world is at our fingertips. And now, within the last few years, we're starting to see really authoritative studies about the true harm that is occurring. And if you're not familiar with these studies, you and your school need to be uh, amongst students who are completely tethered to these things 24-7. Both physical, psychological, and emotional damage that's being done by being over-tethered to their devices. And this is, this is a real tension. It's going to get worse, and we don't know how to solve it today. We don't know how to, how to square that circle today. The fourth one is, uh, we're going to have to realign assessment in our schools, which is the fundamental underpinning of how our kids progress and how they get to college. Uh, how many of you know about the Mastery Transcript Consortium? Okay, that's not good. They, they don't, really, raise, raise your hand if you know about the Mastery Transcript Consortium. Okay, please, Google Mastery Transcript Consortium. Uh, even if you're a K-8 school or you, st you stop before high school, the Mastery Transcript Consortium already has 200 independent school members and they are going to uh, revise, redesign the high school transcript so that we actually measure what we value instead of all the stuff that we don't value. It's a huge challenge. It was led by Scott Looney at the Hawkins School. They now have, I think, close to 200 member schools, uh, all independent schools, but then it will be open to public schools as well. It could be a complete game changer uh, in conjunction with how many of you know the report Turning the Tide? Does that resonate with Turning the Tide? Raise your hand. Okay, another one to Google and read. These things take about three or four minutes to read. A manifesto joined by most major colleges and universities talk about how they're going to change their admissions criteria to try to disincentivize kids to kill themselves in high school. And when I say kill themselves, I mean 
kill themselves. Uh, I hope you know the health and wellness statistics of uh, students in America today, met, the worst of which, uh, the most daunting of which, are in high-income uh, white, uh, amongst high-income white families uh, because of the stress that kids are putting themselves under. So those are two uh, potential game changers, and I, I talk about them in one of the chapters of my book, but just Google, the, Google those two. And then finally, um, <clears throat> It's, it, it seems perhaps disingenuous for me to say you should be exploring the second and the third horizons, the unknown and the semi-known. Well, if we don't know it, how do we get there? But the fact of the matter is that innovation and opportunity are often or most often found at the margins of your experience, not in the center of your experience. You have certain experiences. They overlap with those of others at your school, and there are stakeholders across your school community that have widely diverse experiences. Innovation, effective innovation, innovation that means better times for your organization ahead, longer term sustainability, almost always comes at the margins of our experience, not at the core. So you want to encourage and, 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 and see to what extent you can get people to overlap and learn about new things that don't look like you. Encourage faculty to visit schools that are different, not the same, et cetera. Those are five, my five big challenges, and I'll just end with this. If, if I slash we are even 50% right about the, dis, the distance between where most schools are today and where schools are gonna have to be in the future, then it is a very steep trajectory. We see that curve again. And again, this is not me making this stuff up. We see this time and time again by people who are looking ahead and seeing the rate of change in the past. The point there is trajectory. The challenge I have for all schools is, regardless of where you are today, if you're, a struggling, if you're struggling financially, you're struggling for students, or you're those folks that I was talking to two weeks ago at Exeter and Andover, who are not in that situation. The question is, where are you today? Where do you think you need to be? And what does that trajectory look like? If your school is on the trajectory, if you're having the discussions, if you're thinking about this truly strategically, you have a much better chance of managing this steep curve than if you're pretty much kind of hoping you know, that things get a little better uh, than they have been in the past. That's not a great recipe for, for managing that trajectory. So get, get on the trajectory. You are key leaders in this. I don't see you as business officers. I see you as what I call every other person in your school, your educator leaders. Whether you're a teacher, an administrator, a, a, a head in the business office, you're educator leaders primarily, and you guys have a huge role to play in ensuring your schools intersect with this future. Thank you for listening to this Nice Ace Now podcast. Production support comes from Andrew Cook. Interview and conference support by Judith Sheridan and Barbara Swanson. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. For additional podcasts as well as information about our conferences and other programming, please visit our website, nysais.org.